Welcome to Choosing Leadership, a podcast for high performers with big dreams and for leaders who know that they are more powerful than the level that they are currently playing. I am Sumit Gupta, your host and the founder CEO of the Deploy Yourself School of Leadership. I am here to help the best leaders get better and to help organizations massively improve their output and impact and at the same time eradicating workplace stress. Yes completely eradicating not just reducing completely eradicating i believe in creating a future and a work culture where people wait for mondays not fridays and get to do their most meaningful work the aim of this podcast is not to provide you more content but instead shift the context under which you operate this podcast is titled choosing leadership because that is what leadership is a choice In each episode I will celebrate leaders who have made such choices which are not always easy and comfortable but which has helped them get to where they are today. And let us celebrate the leader in us for choosing to move over our fears, for choosing to be motivated by something bigger than ourselves and for choosing to deal with every challenge that comes on the way. Let us celebrate you right now for stepping into the unknown and taking courageous action as those were the moments when you chose leadership at the end i will share how you can be our next guest on this podcast and with that let's get started jeremy is the founder and ceo of seven factor software in the interview jeremy shared his unconventional approach to scaling a services firm he emphasized the importance of execution over having a robust sales force he also stressed the importance of challenging client assumptions proving that clients are not always right and towards the end he also shared his personal challenges reflecting on burnout and the importance of prioritizing mental health and family revealing the genuine and relatable side of leadership hi jeremy welcome to the choosing leadership podcast hi sumit thanks for having me it's a pleasure to have you here why don't you start by sharing a bit of who you are and what is it that you do today Sure. My name is Jeremy. I started a company called Seven Factor Software. We are a software engineering consulting business that has about 55, 56 people here in the states. We're largely a software engineer owned and operated team. I like to say that. All of our developers manage their own projects. They work with engineering managers to create value for Fortune 500 companies here in the states. We work for Home Depot, Delta, a few other, you know, larger companies here. to help augment their their software engineering initiatives. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. But before we get into that, right? Can you share a bit of your backstory? What led you to software engineering and then entrepreneurship? Sure. So, probably a bit of a non-traditional story to be frank. I grew up in a small town in North Georgia. And so Georgia in the US is this sort of little strange looking state that's right above Florida maybe folks have heard of Florida which is a panhandle of the US and it's an interesting place to grow up it's very rural there's it's a lot of farmland there's no giant metropolis other than Atlanta which is this huge sprawling city that went out instead of up Tokyo went up we went out and it's been Uh, an interesting uh, place to grow up because it's again very rural very farm based i grew up on a farm with chickens and things i spent a lot of my early childhood growing things and tending the land and stuff like that and so 
in a small town like that, there's not a whole lot of opportunities to excel um, academically. Back then, again, my teachers were amazing. I'm not attacking them, but there wasn't like we didn't have, you know, AP classes or anything like that. How I got into computer science was I did this thing called post-secondary options, which means that you go to college while you're going to high school. And I went to a little community college named Young Harris College. I met a couple of professors there that challenged me. They gave me my first C, which was an interesting uh, thing for me. And it really turned me on to the concept of using computers to solve business problems. Because this was before, again, I'm a millennial, right? I grew up uh, without the internet. And then my grandmother got like a 13K modem. So I, I remember the little funny noises as you're connecting to the internet. Yeah. And I would go online and look at GeoCities and build HTML pages on GeoCities back in the day, if you people even remember what that is. And taking a few CS courses in CC++ and really got interested in one, one particular professor named Bob Nichols was near and dear to my heart because he challenged me. He looked at me and said, you are an underutilized potential. You need to go to Georgia Tech and you need mm. to go and go into a field that, that you're passionate about. And so I did. So I, I applied to Georgia Tech, which may sound strange to people because most folks apply to 10 different colleges. The only college I applied to was Georgia Tech. I didn't go anywhere else. I knew that's where I wanted to go and I got in and proceeded to launch my CS career from there. And an interesting mm -hmm. story there is I did actually fail out of Georgia Tech. <laughs> my first GPA was like a 1.6, which if mm -hmm. anyone's ever experienced that in your life, it's a, it's an interesting thing to completely and utterly and miserably fail at something, turn around and try and pull it off. And I ended up not being able to. So I spent a summer working at a grocery store in my hometown, bagging groceries and watching all these people come in and out. And my friends who were going to all these colleges. And I, I told myself, what are you doing? What, why, why are we here again? Nothing wrong with bagging groceries. It's a wonderful profession to make some money. But at the end of the day, I, I wrote a letter to get back into Georgia Tech. They let me back into Georgia Tech. And from there on out, I was a 4.0 student. I, I really learned a lot from that failure and went on to do my master's in computing programming languages and static analysis. So a lot of really fun sort of experiences in college related to failure, which really turned me into the person I am today. Tell me more about that, right? Experiencing those moments of failure and then uh, entrepreneurship, where do those dot, dots connect? Oh, yes, I'm sure it connects very well, right? So that failure was important to me, probably one of the most important things in my life. And I have a saying, and it's silly, but I feel like people learn more through failure than they'll ever learn through success because you need negative examples to compare your success to, to be able to get any sort of barometer on what that success means. And me spending my high school career kind of coasting and then moving into a college that literally kicked me in the face and caused me to fail out because of difficulty and the fact that professors were just like, we don't care if you don't show up and do the work and study we don't care. That was, a, that was an eye-opener to me that really you, you should focus on making yourself the person that you want to be and you should focus on sharpening yourself as much as possible. And, and that includes surrounding yourself with people that will also sharpen you and challenge you to be a better person and a better, a better human and a better leader, to be frank. How that connects to entrepreneurship, again, is seven-factor. We've had a ton of, of failures. They're not as catastrophic as getting kicked out of a college, right? Um, I've never experienced that shutting my doors style failure, which I'm sure some of your listeners have and people you've had on the show have. And I respect that greatly because that would probably just drive me to drive me crazy to have to go through that. But we've certainly experienced several bumps on the way during the growth of our company. Um, an example is this year has been really rough on services firms. Slalom, one of my 
companies I used to work at before I started this company, fantastic company, great people laid off a thousand people. And, and that was a thing that I remember when I was there, it was very, they're very focused on the people that work there and they try really hard to provide a great environment for people and they don't want to do things like this. And the fact that they had to do it was a huge tell that we're in an economy in the States that's just really tough on services firms right now. There's also just pressure from CEOs of these bigger companies to do value engineering, which means they focus on nearshore and offshore. And there's just general pressure to keep your budgets um, closed. So the first six months of this year, we actually lost money for the first time in the history of our company. So I had to pivot from being a peacetime CEO, if you're familiar with peacetime versus wartime CEOs. I had to pivot from being a peacetime CEO into a wartime CEO. And that's a totally different thing for me. That's a different vibe. I spent yeah. the past six years growing my people and focusing on potential energy in my company. Now I have to pivot and focus solely on the kinetic energy in my company where people are delivering and executing and moving forward. And that's a difficult push because then all of a sudden you might have some people on your team that are too much potential energy and not enough kinetic energy. And you have to make a difficult decision. So we ended up having to remove some people from the crew that hurt me personally, probably more than it should have. And that's a thing I learned through that failure, how to be a more focused on ensuring the health of the organization, as opposed to being laser focused on building these people up and creating this team. Mm -hmm. So now luckily we've got some folks in place, Alan, Sarah, Alyssa, that can work on building the business up while my focus is more on the strategy of how we're approaching the market. And through that entire arc of seven factor, we have different arcs in the company. We call that seven factor 3.0. That arc in the company really defined how we're going to market into 2024, which is looking fairly well right now. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That sure. a journey from a peacetime CEO to, to a wartime CEO. So what would you say is your biggest challenge or pain point right now? So sales, I know this is probably something you've heard a thousand times. In consulting services, the most difficult thing is finding a partner that believes in you and you believe in them. And it's all relationships, right? People who send cold emails at services firms don't understand the dynamic of how sales work there. Again, if you're looking for a transaction, that's perfectly fine. That might get you a transaction, but it doesn't get you a long-term multi-year contract mm. like the types of contracts we're focusing on. So I, I would say our biggest challenge right now is finding the appropriate relationships to continue to grow the business and breaking mm. into those procurement areas where, you know, they have a vendor list. I'm sure, you know, some of your listeners have been through this. Yeah. Right? No, we can't let you in. We only let these five people. Why? How do they get on the list? Right. I can prove I'm better than some of those. But it's, it's a huge challenge, but it's one that we're, we're trying to figure out and slowly sorting out the right solution for. Yeah. And I want to draw out something, right? Earlier, you said that we are a company by software engineers. Mm -hmm. and normally, like engineers are very focused on the task and not so much on the relationship. Can you share a bit more on how have you tried to do sales in the past? And is there a connection to what you were just describing? Yeah, it is. And this is going to sound silly, but it really is hire the right people. <laughs> When I was at Slalom, we hired amazing humans. And this is where I learned how to look for people that have the appropriate skill set to be put in mm. front of stakeholders that are also developers. People tend to think of developers as people that just sit in a dark room with some techno music on, writing pretty colored words on the screen and compiling their code and reading Jira tickets. That is not at all what an effective developer does. That's what this concept of called commoditized development does. And, and I am very anti-commoditized development because I didn't go to school for six years 
and and spend my time researching all these amazing computer science topics, learn how to do divide and conquer, learn how to do all of the difficult things in, in computing theory, learn how AI works, mm. learn all these things to be placed into a room and told sit there and just consume Jira tickets, right? I have an article on LinkedIn called Engineers Don't Knit Sweaters, and it is targeted at attacking this notion that developers are simply cogs in a machine that produce an output that then gets passed into QA, and QA produces that output, and that gets passed into the stakeholder's hands, and then that gets fed back into this feedback loop, and it's this mechanical system of A to B to C. And there's a lot of newer conversations around the state of Agile when you look at the Kanban movement. When you look at folks like David Anderson and people like Ted Beck, who is a luminary in our field that invented extreme programming, there's a lot of push towards getting away from this idea that it's just about insert uh, insert quarter and I'll output a code. So Mm -hmm. the way that you produce humans that think about what they're doing is you interview them to to find out if that's what they do, right? Hmm. So if I get a resume from someone that has 10 years Java experience and I'm sitting here and interviewing them, they're just rattling off all the projects they've done. I'm not gonna hire that person because I don't care about the projects you've done. What I care about is, are you curious? Did you know the business problem you were solving? Did you understand at a high level why you solved that problem? Do you know why your CIO and your CEO are putting you on a path to solve this business problem? So it really is about recruiting. The more people you find that are better at looking at the bigger mm. picture and understanding how the code they write solves a business problem, the more valuable your organization will be to those stakeholders that you're working for. Otherwise, we're just another vendor that can be fired at will and who cares, right? Yeah. So it really is finding those people. And it sounds mm. stu- like a stupid answer mm. to your question, but it really is about finding folks that care about what they do and they're invested in the craft that is software yeah. engineering and they're not just there to get paid. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. And this notion of commoditization, I think it's all too common for uh, services firms also. So how, mm-hmm. and also coming back to sales for a bit, right? What mm-hmm. one thing which makes sales easier is if you are able to stand out in the market, if you are able to communicate why you are not a commodity, right? So can you right. share a bit more about your vision, right? Or what is it that you are up to that makes you stand out? Sure. I realized I didn't actually answer your question previously, so I apologize. I'll I'll hit it on this one. Honestly, when I started the firm, I didn't have any salespeople. It was just me. And I'm a developer, right? I spent 10 years in the trenches Mm -hmm. building code for Danger, which built the T-Mobile sidekick. That was my first project, that product that I worked on. Microsoft for a couple of years, working on some backend services for premium mobile experiences, which was the Xbox group. And then into consulting from there and worked on a ton of different projects and a ton of different software solutions for various clients at Slalom. And so that, what that did is that proved to me that you don't necessarily have to have a really tight sales crew to build a successful services firm. Now, are you going to hit $100 million in revenue? No. Like scaling is a totally different problem to solve. But to go from zero to multi-million dollar in five, four years is how long it took us to hit the multi-million dollar mark. That was completely doable just by execution. And to answer your question specifically, the best sales you have is your execution. If you come in and client says, I have a big problem, here's my huge issue. And you're like, awesome, let's attack that. Let's dig into that problem. Let's challenge the client's assumptions. Because here, look, I'm gonna tell you, clients are great, but they're not always right. There are times when a customer says X, Y, Z, and for a fact, the solution is A, B, C. So you have to bring them around to your way of thinking, which is true consulting, by the way, 
um, a commoditized firm would say, cool, we're just going to march to XYZ. And then when you produce XYZ and the client knows it's wrong or they figure out it's wrong, they're going to fire you. I'm sorry, it's your fault. It's not their fault. It's never their fault. It's always your fault. So working in, in terms of, of your job on the ground is to execute at the highest level to turn that into additional sales is how we have grown the company to the point to we don't have a sales force. And we're at the multi-million dollar mark. We're at 50, 60 people. And we're, we're targeting to continue to grow into the next couple of years and, and even get to the $25, $30 million mark fairly quickly. So it really is just about execution, leveraging that, that good work that you did and turning it into sales opportunities through referrals, through conversations, uh, lateral moves into a giant organization. The hardest part, though, and the part that really has a bit of luck to it is finding that first big client that you can post up to. And then from there, expanding out and using that client's accolades to go and dig into other companies. So uh-huh. like working at Delta, for example, allowed us to turn around and call Home Depot and say, hey, we've uh-huh. worked for a multi-billion dollar firm. We've proven that we can do this. Will you hire us? And turns out the answer was yes. Thank you for sharing that. And, and just to dig a d- little bit deeper, right? Are you saying that you're entirely focusing on execution and growing, let's say, through referrals or those lateral moves or are you also doing some active outreach through some dedicated like Salesforce or something like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're not, we're doing complete organic growth. Mm. Now there are other ways to grow too. So this isn't, this doesn't work for everyone. And there's definitely, depending on what you're trying to do with your firm, there non-organic outreach and Salesforce Blast, those can work, but it's very rare for them to work for a high dollar firm like us. Um, again, you're paying a lot more for my folks than you do for offshore and it's okay. That's the norm. That's how the economy works. That's how our world works, right? You're, you're spending 120, 130, 140 USD on us. And you're spending maybe 50, 30, 40, 50 on your offshore and your nearshore. We don't even compete with those two ideas, right? So you're Mm -hmm. hiring a consulting firm like mine because we're adding value at the top line. We're focusing on business problems. We're helping people understand why they're they're doing what they're doing. And we're providing mm. super high level execution, people that are really amazing, that they would have a hard time hiring on their own, right? Mm. As far as sales go, that sells itself once you get in the door. And then from there, yeah. as you mentioned, it's all about lateral moves. It's all about referrals because when a CIO sees that we walk in and we crush mm. it, we do a really good job. He's going to tell his friends, he or she, excuse me, or they're going to tell their friends. And yeah. that's great because it means I don't have to do much work on sales. I just have to show up to the sales calls and and make sure I have the right case studies and focus on, uh, again, providing value. Now, we are pivoting towards the more cold outreach these days, but it's not emails. Emails don't get you anywhere in 2023. What gets you somewhere is showing up to a conference and having a conversation. It's um, providing our silly YouTube channel, right? Seven Factor, we're on YouTube and we have this thing called Dev Better where we talk about a challenge. I have David Linthicum, who was the chief cloud officer of Deloitte on my show last uh, a couple of weeks ago in the episodes mm-hmm. out there to help CIOs understand, here's what you need to do in order to solve some big cloud problems. So you want to position yourself as a thought leader. That way you, you're inbound from a cult perspective is people looking at the media and the content that you put out there. That's our differentiator. That's how we've approached the problem. And it's really helped. We, I've had several people say, hey, I saw you at Dev Better. It's a cool show. Let's mm-hmm. talk. Let's see if there's a way for you to work with us. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I think what you're trying to do is, right, not just becoming a thought leader, but I think bringing a very new set of conversations around either software engineer or engineering or around sales, right? So it's as business partners, as 
somebody who works not just on providing a software, but on uh, partnering with you and helping you grow your business, right? From mm -hmm. you as a CEO, but also from your engineers. So you're hiding for exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. So thank you for sharing that. I think that's a conversation that is so much more needed and it will obviously make your sales easier, but it has a wider impact in establishing yourself as a thought leader, as you said yourself. Yeah. And I guarantee if you ask any successful services firm, I have friends over at a company called Galantis out in Ukraine mm. before all that stuff happened and God bless them. Uh, but the, they approached it the same way. They had one big client that they worked with and they just grew from there and they do good mm. work. And this is an example yeah. of an offshore team doing it correctly. There are other offshore teams, I'm sure, and nearshore teams that have done it correctly where they've approached one mm. single client, they do really good work for that one single client, and then they eventually diversify from there. Now, yeah. the hard part and the thing that people need to focus on is that diversification because you can ride one big horse, right? You can ride that one giant horse to the yeah. point that the founders are able to exit and make a ton of money, but you're not building a successful business that will continue once mm. you exit. If yeah. you sell to a PE firm or however you decide to end your career at this firm that you this baby that you've grown up into an adult, right? Mm. So it's important to think in terms of diversification, long-term value, brand image. Uh, these are things that are important to a services firm. And I learned this at Slalom, right? They're fantastic at this. They're a great company to go and copy what they're doing because mm. they're just so good at it. Yeah. So having said that, right, to standing in 2023, what do you see are some big opportunities ahead for you? In 2024, what we're looking towards is that the economy in the U.S. is hopefully going to have a correction and that we're going to be able to start tapping into the relationships that we focused on this year. We pivoted our entire year away from a growth year to really two words. I like to use single words to describe our direction or mission for a particular year or a quarter. And for us this year, it's retain and rebuild. Spending the first six months of the business being not making any money or breaking even puts us in a situation to where we have to think about different ways and more innovative ways to, to lift our bench, for example. So we came out with the seven-factor um, force multiplier program, which is a way for us to have our engineers work for nonprofits and startups around cost. So we don't lose money. And these other companies gain a lot of accolade. They gain really good software engineers that can do really cool things for them and grow their business, which in turn turns into more relationships, right? Because you do a thing for a charity for free or, or at cost, and they're going to tell their friends. That's just how it works. So the retain, rebuild idea is where we're focusing on retaining our talent because we can't lose people. Your product as a services firm is every human being that wakes up and clocks in and works on your client projects. And if you do not realize that, you are not going to succeed in building a high quality firm. You will build a revolving door of human beings that come in, work for a couple of months and leave when they get 50 cents more from the other guy. Mm. That does not produce value for your clients. So retaining our humans and focusing on how do we keep people here despite the fact that our financial situation is a little bit flat and we're not gonna be able to pay bonuses and all these amazing things that we wanna do, how do we keep people here? And that was a huge focus for this year. And rebuilding, the rebuilding piece is looking at our existing client base. Some of them have contracted obviously for those economic reasons. We want to rebuild relationships with those clients and look to 2024 and build the connections that we need to so that when that budget breaks free in 2024, we're ready mm -hmm. to scale. And additionally, hiring a small bench, which is, again, a bit counterintuitive when you're not making a lot of money. Why are you mm -hmm. adding additional folks to 
your team, we need to ensure that when we get to 2024, what always happens in an up year is we'll get through Q1 and Q2 and the Q3 clients are like, I have budget to spend. And all of a sudden we're scaling. Like in 2022, we scaled by 30 people over the force of like literally three and a half months. It was absolute insanity. And I never, ever want to go through that again. So instead, we're, we're thinking in terms of strategically, what is a bench number that makes sense so that when we go into 22 or 2024, those opportunities that we've cultivated this year result in fruit, right? Think of it as we're gardening, right? Mm -hmm. We're planting our seeds, we're watering our seeds, we're creating value, we're building yeah. our rapport, we're working on things like Dev Better, like this pod podcast, mm -hmm. thank you for having me, and, and having all these conversations with these business leaders to ready us for 24 when we can step in and meet the needs of our customers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And also that metaphor of gardening, right? I think you earlier mentioned that you grew up in a farm. So one thing which I would like to address is coming back to your role, right? You said that you moved from a peacetime to a wartime CEO, but many times yep. it's a tough journey to move to a peacetime CEO. Right? So can you share how have you yeah. invested in your own growth as a leader? How have you uh, cultivated, maybe using that metaphor of gardening, how have you? Yeah, for sure cultivated in uh, in yourself and now as you grow how are you supporting other leaders in your organization to grow and uh, become the leaders that your organization needs in the future that's an yeah that's an awesome question so that that pivot was very difficult for me to go from peacetime to wartime because like i said i like to think of it in terms of kinetic energy and potential energy and and so when you're in peacetime you can afford to cultivate potential energy. You can afford to plant seeds. You can afford to focus on hiring maybe a more junior workforce, right? Having some folks that are fresh out of college or some people that aren't necessarily at the top of their game, but they want mm -hmm. to get there. And so that cultivating of the potential energy can turn into a force multiplier down the road when you've invested in them enough. And that was the first six years or first four or five years, excuse me, of the business. Um, that pivot into wartime was a bit harsh for me um, because I tend to be more of a people-focused person. I am an introvert, by the way, but I do prefer to think through the human element of what we're doing and why we're doing it. I started this company because I wanted to build a software engineer-owned and operated consulting firm because I think that we're good at that. Like Again, a subset of our developer population. And I think I can teach the vast majority of even that subset that are not naturally talented at relationships you can teach how to interact with other people. So we have invested heavily in our team over the past five years towards growing our leaders. We have mostly promoted from within. So all of those engineering managers that I have been promotions from within where I've spent a ton of time with them and worked with them and ensured they're learning the things they need to learn and given them, again, exposure to clients and exposure to failure because it's okay to fail. Again, you have to put... You have to put guardrails around it. You don't want a catastrophic failure that results in lots of money being lost, but you want to develop an environment where an individual can fail and then pick themselves up and learn from that and mm -hmm. focus on pushing them towards, okay, what did we learn from this mm -hmm. interaction? For myself, it's really been surrounding myself with people smarter than me, which isn't hard, actually. And it's it, finding folks like, there's a couple of CEOs of some services firms that exited or a couple of CEOs from product firms that exited and, and moved on with their lives. And I just got mm -hmm. hooked up with them through friends of friends. And I just hold on to them for dear life. And I'm like, please mm -hmm. don't leave me. I need to talk to you. I need to understand how this particular problem should be solved. And I think 
you know, there are a lot of CEOs. You look at like Elon Musk and all the people out in the world. There are a lot of people that just act like they have everything figured out and they come to the table with this sort of confidence Mm. and sometimes arrogance that can be a slightly abrasive. I certainly am not that person. I have always been a very healthy skeptic of my own actions. Mm. And I think that has, that check valve has made it, has made me more successful as opposed to walking in and slamming my hand on my fist on the table and saying, I know what's best to what I say. I always ask everyone for input and try and sort out what the right solution is. And that's helped me to grow. I've again, made some mistakes there. You can't design by committee. That doesn't work. You have to be able to make a decision, which I can make a decision and we can move forward. But there's been a lot of people pouring into me and Uh saying, you have a good company. You built something really, really cool. And again, reaching out and finding people that can pour into me as I'm not, a, I like to read books, but I'm not the kind of person to just sit and look at the New York Times bestseller list for all the self-help and CEO executive leadership books and read them all. I just, mm. that's not a thing that, that, that makes me happy. What makes me happy is having a relationship with someone that will pour into me and I can have those real and transparent conversations around, am I doing this right? Mm. Cause I'm a developer. I got a rubber duck debug. Have you ever heard of yeah, that term? Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that. I think that also shows me a level of self-awareness about uh, where you are, what you're good at, and how can you utilize that. Uh, sure. So, ha- so from that place, right, if you can wake up tomorrow having any new ability or skill, what would that be? Oh, my goodness. That's a hard question. Uh, I would say, wow. I think what I would love to just instantly learn is the ability to convince people quickly (laughs) that I'm right. (laughs) And maybe that's a silly thing to ask for, but it's very difficult. Sometimes the push and pull of client relationships can get a little bit tough and being able to convince people more quickly that I'm right. And I think this comes from confidence. If I'm being self-aware and completely honest with you, the difference between confidence and arrogance is how you treat people, right? Hmm. If I'm a confident person, I can walk in the room and say, I know A, B, C, and X, and Y, and Z, and not make anyone angry over those statements. If I'm arrogant, it's the opposite. I'm coming in with a haughty attitude. I'm saying, I know everything. You need to listen to me. I've always been aired on the side of confidence and I've always aired on the side of, I don't know everything. I don't understand mm. how everything works. So I think maybe that's a skill like that sort of confidence that people have that doesn't come off as arrogance is a thing that I think would be great. I try really hard to do that, but yeah. there are certain days where I'm sure I probably come off a little bit wrong. And that's a thing I would like to get yeah. better at for sure. Yeah. Thank you for, for sharing that. Right. For me, that is a trap question. Like how do I convince somebody? to prove that I am right. And for me, if I were to answer, it would be to give up being right. (laughs) That that makes many times convincing easier. Yeah. Uh, But thank you for sharing that. That's a wonderful paradoxical and also very practical, very real question for somebody in in Mm -hmm. your position. Yeah. So before we wrap up, I want to Mm -hmm. address how do you create space for rest or reflection in your, because it can be so busy and your time can be demanded by 10 different folks at any given time. So how do you do that? So I'm really bad at this. And you've probably spoken, submit with a lot of entrepreneurs who are very bad at this, right? And that's why you ask this question. And I get another trap question. But to be frank, I am really bad at this. And it's a thing that this year and last year have really started to hammer it more into me. So I have two kids and one on the way. I have a three-year-old, a one-year-old and a zero-year-old. And my wife works and I work and I run a business. So I have a lot on my plate right now. And mm. 
one of the things that has forced me to create space is my three-year-old daughter. I have put her to bed every night since COVID and mm -hmm. I have read her stories. I, I spend at least 30 to 45 minutes a night with my daughter, reading her stories, talking to her, asking her how her day has gone and focusing on that relationship. And same thing with my son, who's getting to the point to where he's old enough to start having these conversations. So my kids have forced me to make space because my kids are always what's most important to me in my life, right? That's mm -hmm. my legacy. These are the human beings that I am responsible for. And I have to turn them into productive people, right? It's my job. It's nobody else's, my wife's job too. It's both of our jobs, but you get what I'm saying. Like my responsibility to my kids are to ensure that they are growing up in an environment that helps them be better people and to have the empathy, the emotional intelligence, and just generally the, the good naturedness mm. that I want to see in the world. What I want to see in the world is people that are more agreeable and, you know, that just work together better as opposed to this sort of divisive nature uh, of how humanity is right now. And so that has forced me to have that space. But prior to my kids, I was extraordinarily bad at this, right? Mm. I would spend literally, I would be up until 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time working on things, anything mm. from client work to having uh, sales pitches to developing the next career framework that we're supposed to have. And these, all these things wore me out to the point that I did burn out at one point I think around around 2021-ish, around there, yeah. we grew by 350%. I took literally 120 interviews in the span of three weeks trying to hire people. And I was the person that was doing a lot of these interviews. And that was stupid of me. But I did it because I had such an ownership and I was just so obsessed with, I have to hire the right people, I have to hire the right people. And so that 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 burnout really reset me as well and said, dude, you need to stop. You need to find people you can delegate to that can execute on these needs. And, mm -hmm. and luckily now in 2023, I have my team. I have Alyssa, Sarah, and Alan, and they're the three folks that I'm spending all of my time with to help pour the vision out of what the company's supposed to do, help them focus on what we're, what our goals are and what our targets are and grow them into the next level leaders that, mm -hmm. that they need to be while all the same telling them you need to rest, right? Don't. Yeah. Do what I did. Don't obsess. And again, entrepreneurs out there, it's your baby. I get it. You, yeah. you want it to succeed. And you have this relentless obsession with this idea that, that you came up with. And that's amazing. And that's special. But it's not worth your life. It's not worth your health. I gained 30 pounds over the past mm. two years. And that's not good. I need to get myself into better shape. I need to focus on my own mental health, which is a thing that a lot of our entrepreneurs don't focus on. And I think that's a huge trap. You need to focus on your mental health. And you probably heard this through a thousand people and a thousand books, but I'm here to tell you burnout sucks. It puts mm. you in a position where you make bad decisions and you do bad things. So focusing on myself is a thing that a theme that 2023 is forced upon me through having those two kids and a few health issues that I'm working through. Like all of that together has put the brakes on seven factors growth and put me in a position where I have to focus on myself. And that's a good thing. Right. Life has yeah. created this channel for me to rest for a minute. And into 2024, I'm going to be carrying these values with me to try and make that space mm. for my family, for myself and, and for my own mental um, health. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And I think I want to commend you on like how beautiful that is, like what you shared about your daughter, putting her mm. to bed every day, every night, especially given everything that you shared earlier about what time or facing some challenges on the sales front. Uh, that's what makes uh, life meaningful. 
Yeah. Uh, and I'm glad that you have been able to balance that. At the same time, like this is, is, is not for everybody. And what you shared, it's three year, one year old, uh, and then another on the way, like you have your hands full. Yeah. So thank you for opening up about that. I think that makes yeah. us human rather than what you shared earlier, putting a persona of I have everything under control. That yeah. makes us human and that, that makes us better as leaders. And I think your leadership team, as you mentioned, will also thank you to share about this with them because it will set the right example rather than just try to be a hero to everybody, which right. uh, like over the long term never works. So thank you for adding that. I can't appreciate or I can't say how much I appreciate that and how much that matters in like we talk about sales, we talk about all of these like fancy leadership business things, but these simple things sometimes matter most in like how we relate to people, how we connect, how we build those relationships that can eventually lead to more sales or more of that growth. So thank you for sharing that. 100%. And I think that the biggest takeaway is genuineness is more important than mm. anything. Because yeah. I grew up in a small town where my dad knew everybody, I knew everybody, and you'd walk into the grocery store and find people you knew. Like that's that sort of connection, that genuine connection yeah. between other human beings to me is what really creates value, right? From It doesn't matter what your firm does. It doesn't matter what your product does. If you have a genuine connection with other human beings, then you can produce something from that, right? Yeah. And, and like you said, I am who I am. This is who I am. If people don't yeah. like me, cool. There are a thousand other people out there you can go talk to. But to me, like my mission in life is to build other good human beings, not just to mm. build a company that creates value for clients, but to show people that if you all just talk to one another, and communicate yeah. and focus on what you're trying to accomplish as a team, you'll probably be more productive mm. than if you were to just go at odds and do the whole toxic department versus department nonsense. But thank you for having me yeah. on, by the way. I appreciate yes. the opportunity to to tell my story and I, I appreciate you. Yeah. And and, uh, and what, for... is, what is the best way for anybody to reach out to you, find out more about what you're up to? For sure. I would say first is connect with me on LinkedIn and I'm not going to get my website sevenfactor.io, but at the same time, connecting with me on LinkedIn, you're going to get an exposure to all of the content that we put out, which mm -hmm. is way more important. And check us out on LinkedIn, the company Seven Factor Software as well. Alyssa is my marketing director. She does an awesome job of putting together all the articles that we've put out into the ether and collating like our Dev Better series and all that kind of stuff. So that's the best place to reach out to us. And I'll always connect with you on LinkedIn. I have rarely said no, because mm -hmm. I believe again, that that connection is the force that we're looking for. Thank you. Thank you, Jeremy, once again, for sharing your story, sharing uh, everything that lies ahead of you. And as we end, I want to wish you all the best for all the success that lies ahead for you. Thanks, Sumit. You too. It was a pleasure. That's it. For this episode of Choosing Leadership with Sumit Gupta, I choose leadership every time I record this podcast and I invite you to do the same. I invite you to design a life of joy, meaning, pride and satisfaction, not just for yourself, but for everybody around you. If you got something out of this episode, would you share this episode on social media? And if you know somebody who would be a great guest, can you tag them on social media to let them know about the show? And if you are a leader who wants to acknowledge how far you have come and have big dreams for the future, please reach out to me to be a guest on this podcast. And I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. This is what I do most naturally, to lovingly and gently provoke you to help you see your own light, to help you see what you are already capable of 
To make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and it means a lot to me and my team. If you want to know more, go to deployyourself.com and subscribe to my newsletter or follow me on LinkedIn. I want to thank everyone who contributed to making this show a reality and I want to thank you for listening. Always remember that you are enough, you are loved and you matter. This is Sumit. Until next time, keep choosing leadership.